wanted to create a platform whereby you could just use collective intelligence to create kind of a way to score innovations in such a way that doesn't matter what your background was or where you came from. It's a great idea. It should get funded. So that's the core idea of that leveling, you know, making sure capital flows based on the value that they're creating, not who they know or where they went to school. Welcome to the Faith Driven Entrepreneur Podcast. If you're an entrepreneur driven by your faith or want to be driven by your faith, then you're in the right place. The best way to stay connected is to sign up for our monthly newsletter at faithdrivenentrepreneur.org. This podcast doesn't exist without you, our community. One of the things that the community has asked us for is helping connecting them with like-minded faith-driven investors. We're in the process of launching Marketplace, a new platform to present your venture and connect with like-minded investors that are serious about honoring God as you are. Everything from philanthropic to market rate deals, from here in the U.S. to emerging markets. Check it out at faithdriveninvestor.org forward slash marketplace. While you're there, please send us any thoughts you have about how this podcast might better serve you or any questions you might have about being a faith-driven entrepreneur. Welcome back to the Faith Driven Entrepreneur Podcast. I'm joined by William and Rusty, as always. And guys, today, this is a special occasion. It's rare that we stay within Silicon Valley for a podcast. All three of us, of course, live in different towns here. But we've got a guest from Half Moon Bay. We are talking before we went live. Half Moon Bay, of course, being the home to lots of really cool things, including the greatest pumpkin festival of all time, but also Mavericks. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm a little geeked out today because our guest, you know, when you want to talk about somebody who's been there from the beginning, yeah. right? This whole Silicon Valley thing, you know, and uh, you know, a lot of people just think Silicon Valley from the show, you know, uh, which is pretty funny. Unfortunately, sometimes it was too real, but you know, there was a beginning, and our guest today was pretty much at the beginning. So I, I'm, yeah, you know, I got a little, got a little, yeah, geek things going on. Your intro, uh, you're talking about 1969. Yeah, that says a little bit about my age, too, but we'll let that. I was only 14 when I came. I'm just joking. <laughs> yeah, well, you're talking in the intro, Rusty, about 1969, and uh, I'll tell you what I was doing in 1969. I was only around for about two and a half months of it. Oh, there you go. Yeah. So that's super cool. That's a faithful obedience in the same direction working in an incredible industry. So maybe just uh, typically we start off by asking our guests who they are, where they came from, their faith journey and how it's all worked out. We do want to get that from you. But as we get started, just maybe some thoughts and observations of the last 50 years in Silicon Valley. I mean, it's got to be much, much, much different than it was 50 years ago. So actually, I came here in 1982. So it's just about 40 years ago. But actually, it was a wonderful experience because I literally ran the AI group at Texas Instruments in uh, Texas, and I'm originally from the East Coast. We'll get there in a minute. But I invited Ed Feigenbaum, who was one of the fathers of expert systems. I invited him to speak uh, to the TI group. And after it was over, I was telling him I had grown up in the East Coast where I like mountains and good scenery. And no offense to anyone from Texas here, but the scenery wasn't quite as good as I wanted in North Texas. And so two weeks later, he basically said, why don't you come out to California and do a startup? And I thought about it and did it. So I arrived here. And the fortunate thing of that part of the story is with Ed, I got to meet John McCarthy, who was one of the other fathers of AI. So two things happened. I got early stage of 
Silicon Valley, but plus right in the heart of the development of artificial intelligence. So some number of our listeners will think of artificial intelligence as being something that's been going on for two or three years. They've just heard about it starting to come into the mainstream. You're talking about a very different start. I mean, it's been going on for a long time. You're talking about the very beginning. Well, in fact, it was very big. There was a first wave that was quite big, and it was around something called expert systems. So the first wave is how do we take what humans are good at and put it in a program? And DARPA will call this hand-coded AI, where you would literally try to model how people use logic and knowledge to solve a problem. And so you actually built something called symbolic processing systems that think of the math here being logic, reasoning, and knowledge representation as the basis of it. Current AI is all about mathematically learning patterns from data, but the two play together. In fact, we'll get into this, but what's happening now is there is a return to bringing together the first wave of AI with the second wave of AI to create a new wave around human-centric or human-empowered AI. Hmm. Okay, I want to get more into that here in a little bit because there's a lot there. When you start talking about artificial intelligence, there's a theological underpinning to all of this, and I want to unpack that a bit. Okay, let's go back to who you are. You come from the East Coast. Who are you? Where do you come from? Have you always been a Christian? Bring us up to speed. So I was born in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. And uh, home of uh, Jim Thorpe. Yes, exactly right. Uh, it was an interesting little town. It was a pre-revolutionary war town. So we had our bicentennial in the mid 50s. And, you know, we have the George Washington slept here thing kind of going. Yeah. And so it was, a, you know, one of the colonies. But my father was a minister in that town. And that's also interesting as a teenage kid growing up. But we'll leave that alone for a minute. But I basically uh, committed my life to Christ when I was 16 and literally thought I was going to go into missions work. And it's a funny life story. Every time I try to go into missions, God's pushed me into technology. And seriously, I tried over and over again. You'll hear that later as we get into this. But I really had a heart for Bible translation. And the heart for Bible translation literally led me into artificial intelligence. Because I got very fascinated with the idea of how can you learn a language and then translate the Bible into that language. So that was my beginning journey in faith, was setting off to do that. I got to meet, actually, Cameron Townsend, who was the founder of Wycliffe Bible Translators, as well as Kenneth Pike, who was a professor at University of Michigan, who developed a linguistics theory that actually has a lot of the components of what we now use in AI. But what was going on at that time? And this is actually, I graduated from high school in 65. And there were people who were beginning to think about using computers more for the text processing side, but to help in translation. And in fact, when very from the beginning of when computers were born, they began to try to do machine translation. Machine translation actually goes back to the early 50s. And so I got caught up in that vision that maybe there was a there there on how you could take computing technology and marry it with 
you know, this notion of machine translation and could you somehow, and that was the initial vision. I mean, I thought, wow, you can translate the Bible into all the languages quickly. And there was another component to it, which is the method by which Summer Institute of Linguistic use for learning languages was kind of a learning technology where you try to learn patterns. And so my initial foray was into mathematical linguistics. There was a professor at Cornell University by the name of Joe Grimes, who was doing some early work in that. But there was a number of academics who could see this vision of the possibility of computing technology completely changing the way that we got the word of God out to the world. And also as part of that, I mean, I'll get into that a little bit later, but there was actually an ongoing thread there. So literally the way I got into AI was inspired by this mission of, you know, can you apply computing technology to enabling people to learn languages and then translate the Bible into those languages? Okay, I'm fascinated by one question. We can go deeper at some point, but when I hear you talk about that, my mind goes to, well, it should have worked. Did it? Did I feel like there's still a ton of people working on Bible translation? Why wouldn't that have worked at this point? Massive underestimation of how hard it is to understand language. And that Mm. became my life journey. And my part of AI was natural language understanding and still is. If you dig in to what's at the core of CrowdSmart, it is really working with how do we understand when people are saying something, what it communicates to someone else, and all of those kinds of things. But it is a harder problem, and this is more about what I expect about the future of AI. We've made more progress in natural language understanding in the last five, 10 years than went on for 50 years prior. And one of the massive improvements has been in that area. But today it would be more possible, but it's still not quite there. Because it's a deep understanding. You have to understand the culture, the meaning, the amount of knowledge that gets applied in Bible translation is way deeper than you can still encode into a machine. It's one of the issues also, um, like who has authority? Like, I mean, people are translating the Bible all the time, humans, right? They're, they're spending hours and hours pouring over their interpretation of the Greek and how it was applied. And then they say, this is my translation. Is one of the issues with machine learning that you can't have authority? It should be the crowd? Well, that's a good point. And now you're playing into my beliefs about that. It should be collective intelligence and no one even has gotten close to doing that. So in my own, you know, I've continued to stay fascinated with linguistics. But one of the things that, as we all know, if we were all students of the Bible, we have to get into what was the context? And, you know, what was going on? So cultural context and all of that determines semantics and meaning. And so that is, I mean, to your point is that is the hard part. Now, I would dream of a day when people could use, say, collective intelligence to perhaps generate some more integrated translation. But anyway, yeah, it's in general, I would say very hard problem. That's interesting. That's interesting. And okay, so that's how you got into AI. Could you walk us through, maybe do a quick flyover of your career to date? Obviously, you've mentioned CrowdSmart a couple times, and I want to make sure we tell our audience what that is. But what else have you worked on during this season? And and sort of tell us a little bit about where you are today and what CrowdSmart's trying to do. 
So it's a crazy path. I started out, I thought, well, I'm going to go at the time, keep in mind artificial intelligence, while it had been named in the summer of 1955 at Dartmouth, it was still very nascent by the mid 60s at that point. So the areas you could study, and actually computer science was barely coming into being as a degree. Most schools, even like MIT or others, had double E. And within double E, you had some work around computer science. That's what I did. I was a double E at Drexel. But while there, in retro, I can see it. I couldn't see it for decades. But God intervened in my career in a very strange way. I was planning on being a double E with the idea of working on this linguistic stuff while helping out in missions with things like radio communications and all that practical. I lost my scholarship. I walked up and down the halls of Drexel looking for work study. You know, as a pastor's kid, I had no money. And I was going to a private school, which was at the time 10K a year, which was a lot of money. And so this Jewish professor by the name of Richard Corin befriended me, but he said, you know what? You're going to have to study solid state physics. And he got me into a fully supported research fellowship where I went from being an undergrad to being in the graduate program, working on my PhD in applied physics. And I couldn't figure out what God was doing with that at all, except that, another little thing, his next door neighbor was a very, very on-fire believer. We'd have daily prayer meetings together. So God put these two people together in the same hallway. And so I studied all this. And this was the summer of 69 when I'm on the teletype. I'm literally, I happen to have a professor also at University of Pennsylvania, Herb Callen, famous in thermodynamics, who had this envision of how you could take things from statistical physics into computer science. And if you look in the literature today, a lot of that work is what is in machine learning. So literally, I was getting exposure to early forms of mathematical AI through that process, and I didn't figure it out until the current wave of AI showed up. But I literally went down that path. So that was one path. So I had no choice but to go into the academic. I went off to try to be a Bible translator. I thought, maybe I'll do that. I studied with Summer Institute of Linguistics after I finished my PhD. And then I got offered a position in physics, teaching physics and computer science at a local university, Texas Woman's University. And I did that for seven years until I got recruited into TI to run a part of their AI group. Because it was during that period at the university that I started to publish papers that touched into the AI area and befriended a bunch of people who were at the AI group from MIT, and they brought me into that group. And then from that group, I got recruited out to Silicon Valley. So that's a high-level view. Then in Silicon Valley, I became CEO of IntelliCorp, which was the first and I think only AI company to go public in the 80s. It was called NAI the stock symbol, very successful in the area of expert systems, essentially helping corporations take the expertise of their experts, putting it into computational systems. And then from there, I was then in the track of being CEO of tech companies on through current. So after IntelliCorp, it was Connect, which spun out of Apple, one of the first e-commerce companies to go public. And then after that, another company that's, uh, you know, won't go into those details, but basically that's been my 
I've been part of, you know, kind of three waves, the AI wave, the first one, the e-commerce wave in the 90s, and then what became kind of the social media technology wave, which I consider what we're doing at CrowdSmart still part of that. Those are good waves to be a part of. Fun, just fun. <laughs> and one of the things I want to duck into this for a little bit, you know, we talk a lot about jobs here on the podcast. We talk a lot about how employment is such an amazing thing that faith-driven entrepreneurs can bring to the world, how God desires work, how he had work before the fall, just the dignity of work, the dignity of giving a good job to someone and, and what that does for them. And I know recently you wrote a paper talking about job creation through sustainable investing with artificial intelligence, which is a bit of a mouthful, but I think you're going to deconstruct that a little bit. Could you walk us through a little bit of some of your thoughts? Yeah. So the whole basis for founding CrowdSmart initially was we wanted to find a way to level the playing field for entrepreneurs. The way Silicon Valley works, and I happen to enter it that way, right? You have a Stanford professor bringing you in. How hard is it to attract funding, right? I mean, the point was, is we were connected immediately. I met with Gordon Moore, the famous Moore's Law, Gordon Moore. I met him when I came in. So connection is all about connection, not about do you really have a good idea? Even if you went to school somewhere other than, you know, if you were in the main view, somebody knows you who knows somebody else. Kim Palese and myself, and we really believed that we wanted to create a platform whereby you could just use collective intelligence to create kind of a way to score innovations in such a way that it doesn't matter what your background was or where you came from, it's a great idea, it should get funded. So that's the core idea of that leveling, you know, making sure capital flows based on the value that they're creating, not who they know or where they went to school. Now we ran a small fund for three or four years applying this technology to that and one of the things we found out is we were funding 40-some percent of the founders and CEOs were female, radically different from what was going on in the venture world, and were minority-driven. And they didn't necessarily go to the same schools. So what that led to is that article is we believe that if you sort of do this in general, get out where you can, and we're working with groups like Angel MD or others that are you know, angel investors or early stage investors, how can you use technology to make it such that if you have a great idea and a great team and you've built something that you're going to be able to get funding for it and thereby create jobs. It was, we all know, job creation comes through new companies. And so the driver is finding capital flow to the ideas that are most likely to do job creation. Tom, so you heard at the beginning of this thing that I, I was geeked out, right, to have you on here because I actually built my first expert system shell in 1987. Whoa, good. No way. I, IBM had delivered us to it at Pratt and Whitney, where I worked at the time, and you I were, was working. You were a customer of IntelliCorp. We were, and yes, and so we had this tool. And I was working in a group called the Hourly Compensation Group, and, and it was where we scored and rated jobs 
the work that people did against a pay grade. And we had all these different pay grades, and we had the National Metal Trades Association scoring system. And there were five guys in this group that had been doing it for like 50 years, and they were all getting ready to retire. And they were like, who's going to do this in the future? So we took the IBM expert system shell, and I took all everything I could from these guys' heads, and I put them in. And so if a job used a drill, it went this way. Did you have to pick the drill bit yourself? Then it went that way until you finally could score the job against the 11 different um, levels of the That's exactly right. And by the way, IBM, our product at IntelliCorp, the key product, Knowledge Engineering Environment, was an IBM program product. So they were very close partners. I don't know if you used our product or not, but we were very close partners with IBM in those days, like I said, if you know what an IBM program product means as part yeah. of their core product yeah. offerings. And I remember Pratt & Whitney. We worked with probably, I don't know, I remember at one point, 60, 70% of the Fortune 100. We did all kinds of cool stuff. By the way, just so you guys don't feel bad, you know the fact that this variable pricing on airplane seats, that unfortunately came from us. So that it used to be there were just airplane ticket prices that were singular. You know, you paid, you know, get from here to there. Then someone figured out, hey, there are all these people who do these cool decisions about inventory management. Could we put that in an expert system? We did. Republic wow. Airways did it. Republic got bought by Northwestern. That then propagated through the industry as, you know, using this rule-based inventory right. assignment. So you may pay you know, $1,200 and the person next to you spent $400. And guys, we just heard the beginning of demand pricing. There it was right there. That's yeah, really but that cool. came out of I mean, the fact that you yeah. can scale it. What's important right. about that is computational models can then scale. Right. And therefore it suddenly be, it goes to the industry. All right. So let's fast forward. You know, this all turns into, you know, what we now know as AI or think of AI. Can you dispel some of the myths of AI, right? Because we're all kind of a little scared of it. I actually, I'm really excited about it because I think when it democratizes and we all are running AI, you know, smart machine learning programs on our phones, the world will get amazing. But right now, I think there's a bit of a fear. Some, you know, small groups are going to control them, then that's going to control us. You know, take us down the path of dispelling the myths. And then I also want you to weave in how your faith is a lens on what should or shouldn't happen with AI? Uh, it's a very, very good question. And I mean, you're tapping into something that, you know, you're sort of making my mind explode at the moment. But let's start off with, first of all, one of the things we did at IntelliCorp is we had the ability, and one of the things I was most fascinated about, my specialty has been in knowledge representation and reasoning in that first wave. And there is a paper that was published in the late 80s in the ACM around the roles of frame-based reasoning and knowledge representation in AI systems. But underneath that, we had an ability to do something called truth maintenance. You love that idea. The idea is in a logical system, you say, if these are your assumptions, then all of these things have to be consistent with that. So it's about logical consistency of truth management. You can only begin to toy with that idea about what that means in terms of faith. But 
there literally is an ability to do what are called multiple worlds, where in this world, this assumption set, these are the logical consequences of that. In this world, in this subset, these are the logical consequences of that. Now, I believe for the future of AI, and one of the reasons I believe we need to marry this knowledge representation side, because we can use that to build ethical systems or ethically driven operating systems into AI. And now, is that going on yet? No, but is right now, the National Science Foundation is looking to fund with $20 million, a new center for human empowered AI. I have been part of sort of a mission-driven thing early on to you know, move from the current generation of AI to human-empowered AI, just to have this ability to integrate how we think we should have machines as an extension of human capability as the way we make sure that AI systems are working at the bequest of what humans want to see happen. Now, can that get perverted? Possibly. By the way, I'll tell you this, I do not believe generalized AI is around the corner. My statement on that, I think I have it in one of my papers, is generalized AI will be a decade away for many decades to come, <laughs> meaning that... So I'm not going to get my program on my uh, smartphone? Well, you will get some snippets. I mean, some of the stuff you can do right now, for example, the bad stuff, ability to completely create false identities, you know, or take someone's identity and falsify it, that's all real. And that's really dangerous. The ability to make you believe that every bit of news you're reading is agreeing with you is real right now. And that's caused by AI. And that's disastrous as we see what it's doing in the world right now. People kind of, they're in a chamber reflecting their own biases. And it's a very dangerous thing. And we see some of the, I mean, people can go into imaginary worlds where they're no longer grounded in truth. That's a very dangerous thing. And AI is at the root of that. And that needs to be dealt with. And there are groups that are forming, you know, this ethically oriented AI. But the notion of you know, just a generalized thinking machine is a ways off, I believe. But the components we have now need to be brought under some kind of ethical guidance. I really believe that. So where my faith comes into this, first of all, I have a couple of things that have integrated in this. If you think about the investment world and you think about the definition of faith, faith is about evidence of things hoped for, right? Investing is kind of about that too. It's You see some evidence and then you hope there's some outcomes out of that. The AI technology for that is Bayesian. Reverend Bayes was a Presbyterian minister in the 1700s who was trying to connect, you know, the notion of evidence with what we believe about the future. So he has literally taken this notion of evidence-based reasoning with we see through a glass darkly, and he was trying to put math around that. And that is now the foundation for a lot of AI systems, was, which is this, and literally what we do in our system is we create Bayesian belief networks. Certain beliefs will imply certain outcomes. So for me, this integration of faith in AI is pretty real because you can actually, you know, kind of create 
this sense of, well, based on this set of reasons or facts, these are the outcomes we might expect. Applying that to investing, it's fairly straightforward. It's things like, well, if the facts are that the companies had some traction and people agree that on the traction, and if the team is hot and people agree on the team being hot, that would predict that they're likely to do. I'm oversimplifying that. But you can see where what we're trying to do in our system here is we're literally saying, what are your reasons for believing? And then we try to project from that, what do we think the outcome is going to be? So, I mean, I, I know I wrapped a lot into that, but oh, I really good. believe the way we think about evidence and then what we want to do is how do we think about evidence and what does that imply about what we expect? There's That's a really lot good. of overlap. That's really good. Um, flip it around for us. What does AI do to expand the kingdom in the future? Well, I start go back to my dream in the uh, <laughs> when I was a kid was can this help with communication? And I what I mean by that is, you know, essentially. Bible translation is one, but I would think more is how do we um, use AI? For example, what we're just talking about here, use AI to level the playing field for capital flow to the right. I mean, this is just about integrity of where that money goes and will that create jobs and will it do things for the least of these, my brethren? I mean, one of the things, probably the most haunting Scripture verse is that one for me, right? What did you do for these, at least of these, my brother, particularly in Silicon Valley, right? You know, you live in Silicon Valley, that's not your first thought. And for me, it's always been a dream to take AI technology and how can we use this to perhaps help with entrepreneurs that may be in developing world? How could we create an ability. I did a little thing where there was a group called Gaza Geeks. And I thought, well, could we use the technology to help people who are behind in the Gaza Strip uh, get advice from people at Google and other places to be able to build their startups? I mean, you start to think of knowledge sharing on a global basis where we might be able to take our experience here in Silicon Valley and enable someone in Kenya to build a business that creates jobs. That's fascinating. I think that uh, I think that uh, you've talked yourself into two other podcast episodes, at least the future of AI and missions, and then also just how AI and the work that you're doing at CrowdSmart impacts investors and investing models and democratizing access to capital. I want to ask you about your reflections, not so much just on AI, but on what being an entrepreneur in general has taught you about God and your faith. How have you seen God show up? What is it about God that you now know from your entrepreneurial career that maybe you didn't know as a pastor's kid growing up in Carlisle, Pennsylvania? Wow. Big, really good question. Uh, one of the benefits I think I alluded to earlier, I've had, you know, the guy I created the key product with, which was an IntelliCorp product, was a PhD from MIT, but a solid believer. So I've had this benefit of in each company to have some, you know, co-creators of that company be people of faith. That's been great. But it's also, I've seen myself sometimes get, when IntelliCorp went public and all that, I'll open confession, I got completely caught up 
in that. And it, literally, I went from when I first came out here as a pastoral intern while trying to do a startup at Peninsula Bible Church, because I was still, you know, wanting to do something with ministry. And yet when that thing took off and in the 80s, IntelliCorp was kind of like the Google we had the free meals and everybody, we were, IBM was a shareholder, so was Harvard Endowment. So we were like, and I was traveling all over the world. I was busy, 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 and kind of got pulled away, just got swept up. And so one of the things that taught me is stay grounded, right? It's real, it's important how you finish, not how you start. And so it was about getting back to grounding. And frankly, I went through a divorce and had to do a restart in my faith walk. And it's not that I left my faith walk. It's that the centrality of it to how I made decisions had faded off to the side. And so one of the things I learned is you keep the centrality of your faith walk at the very core of how you relate to people and how you make decisions. And so now today, if you were to say, how do I spend my day? I start the day of 45 minutes to an hour in the word praying because I realize that almost every day, it's easy for me to get caught up in those pressures and go off track. And then I finish the day with a review, you know, because the last thing I do at night is go through the word and prayer. First thing I do in the morning is that. And the key element of that is be anxious for nothing. Think about that and being a CEO of a company where you may, you know, all the different things that go on. That has been the biggest spiritual discipline for me is live in the peace of God and live in a sense of joy, no matter what's going on. If you're down to a thousand in the account, you can't make the next payroll, but then, you know, whatever is going on is that centrality of focus on just spend your mental energy in today and focus on what God wants you to do today. And it may even take care of some employee situation more than some business deal but just stay focused on that. So that's what I've learned is that I call it micro obedience, you know, obedience in the very little things. We're supposed to be people of joy. So if I'm in a meeting stressing out, that's no good. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not excusable. You see what I'm saying is, or if I'm being anxious or playing out scenarios, that's not good. And by the way, I failed this week on one of those. I did too. Yeah. So, but the point of that, is that passion about micro-obedience, I think is very important. Micro-obedience, that's really good. <laughs> well, I mean that because we so often read these scripture verses, like be anxious for nothing and say, yeah, that's a good idea. No, it's a commandment. Mm -hmm. If you're a Christian and you're running around showing all kinds of anxiety about whether it's running out of money or making a lot of money, which either side of it, it's that peace, contentment, and that has to be right now. Some number of people listening to this are going to identify with the Tom that is going through the IntelliCorp IPO. Are just crazy. Yes, they still believe. They believe enough to listen to the Faith Driven Entrepreneur. There are lots of other more entertaining podcasts by Joe Rogan that you could listen to with your time. So they believe enough to listen to this podcast, and yet they just aren't, they're not there yet, or not that's yet, it's that they've lost it along the way, as maybe you had during the time of just a lot, a lot of work going around that IPO. How'd you get it back? And what would you tell them when they've kind of drifted away? Yeah, well, first of all, you know, 
God's intentions for you are far better than anything you can imagine for yourself. And I know that's hard to get in your head because a lot of times they'll have you walk into something that doesn't look like it's good for you at all. And so, you know, God blessed me with a marriage where, you know, it was literally, I got married a second time and, and we're now married going on 30 years but there was a, you know, kind of a rebirth there of a believing woman who I, you know, partnered with. And I literally just in that transition as lifestyle was, I'm never going to do that again. I'm always going to put a boundary around the work thing. Work is not my God, right? And so this other part I would say, you really have to be careful about idolatry. You know, idolatry is a real deal. And if you say that, you know, once I get all this money, I'm going to do great things with it. Forget that idea. <laughs> because, you know, the real thing is God can provide you anything you need. And so your focus should be totally in trust on him. I mean, so I had that attitude for a long time. Hey, I'm just going to work like a maniac now. And this thing is going to do really great. And then, and then, and then, you know, I'll do all these things. Well, that is not the right way to go. Only thing I could say is the enjoyment of everyday life comes when you trust God. And we're supposed to live in delight and contentment and joy. And it's just better to live that way than in worry and strife and trying to make something happen. I don't know if that helped. Amen. I can't imagine it not helping. Um, (laughs) uh, That was an amazing thing. And I'm about to come to our close and ask you about a scripture that God is using in your life right now. But one just came to mind to me as you were giving that talk, and I want to share with our audience. My wife and I, uh, Deb, were recently reading through Proverbs, doing the the monthly Proverbs, and we were in Proverbs 30 and just read this different. Uh, But Proverbs 37 through 9, I think, speaks to what you were talking about, where it says, two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove me far from falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. And I just love that picture of daily bread from Proverbs. And of course, Jesus repeats that in the Lord's Prayer. And I hear you speaking to that of, you know, that can't be your focus, either achieving so much or having so little. Your focus has to be on that micro obedience to what God's called us to do. So I just wanted to share that. And now I'll invite you to share. We love this portion of our episodes at the end where we get our guests to share how God's working on their heart through his word and through the scripture and how that can transcend to our listeners. So I'd love to invite you to share a little bit about maybe what is coming to your mind through the word of God. Could be something today, could be something uh, in a season of your life that you've been meditating on. Uh, But if you wouldn't mind sharing, we'd, we'd really appreciate it. Well, this morning it was in James and how the tongue is a rudder, right? And, you know, I mean, that was the focus of your words really matter. And so when you're leading a company, you have a lot of interactions with people where it's very easy for your words to either be discouraging or hurtful or whatever. So I look at the role of CEO of a company, it's primarily is how am I relating to the people in the company, to customers, you know, all the stakeholders within that, you know, what words am I using? And that just, there's a lot in that, right? 
Don't create words of overpromise to investors, right? Be transparent. Uh, don't create words of discouragement, but on the same time, you have to manage two hard problems. So how do you deal with difficult situations? So to me today, it was like my prayer was, you know, the words that flow out of my mouth would bring grace and kindness or support or growth to people. And so hopefully that happens with, I mean, it was interesting. I'm a big version fan. So this just happened to be in a scheduled study I'm going through. And it happened, that came up today is that verse. And I just thought how, you know, that the tongue can just, you can turn the course of a relationship with a few words. <laughs> and it's very powerful. That's a great word. God has used your tongue to help steer us, the three of us in our audience, and we're really grateful. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for agreeing to be back on our podcast, on the Faith Driven Investor Podcast. In the business, that's called the presumptive close, by the way. <laughs> well, the good thing is he's in Half Moon Bay, so we can go find him yeah. <laughs> right. if we need to. That's right. I know. look, this is, first of all, I want to encourage entrepreneurs because it's hard. I mean, I jokingly say to my friends, uh, I don't bungee jump. You know, I don't do anything like that. But, you know, when you're doing an early stage company, some days you think you're going to die. Some days you think you're going to rule the world. And it is actually, it's exhilarating and fun. But it's important that you maintain a youthful mind at all times. That's, that's another thing I think we learn so much from scripture is this literally having this youthful mind and how we approach situations, which I think is God's will for us, meaning all things are possible. You know, all of that, that my joy in working in early stage companies is around this, that sense of the adventure. It's more fun than you can imagine. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us on today's show. We hope you enjoyed it. We are very grateful for the opportunity to serve you, the larger faith-driven entrepreneur community, and we want to stay connected. The best way for you to do that is to sign up for our monthly newsletter at faithdrivenentrepreneur.org. And while you're there, we want to hear from you. We derive great joy from interacting with many of you, and it's been very rewarding to see people come to the site and listen to the podcast now from more than over 100 countries. But it's even more important to us that you feel like this is your show and that you'll help make it something that best equips you on your entrepreneurial journey, one that you're proud of and one that you're going to share with others. Hey, this podcast wouldn't be possible without the help from many of our friends, executive producer Justin Foreman and program director Johnny Wills. Music is by Carl Kegwell. You can see and hear more of his work at summerdregs.com. Audio and editing by Richard Barley of Cornerstone Church in San Francisco. Mm -hmm.